That's great. Thanks very much. Um, I'm going to use the microphone. I know there's only a few of us here, but at some point we may be competing with across the across the tent whenever they put on some audio or something like that there. So uh, as Susan said, my name is Johnny and I've been working for CUI now for, for nearly two years, just over 18 months. Um, and one of the things... Uh, is I can recognize quite a few of you, and some of you I know are already involved in, in CUs, either here uh, in Ireland or somewhere else across the water. The thing about being a CU and being part of IFES is that the CU's purpose is to be a mission team on campus. It's something that you've maybe heard from the front in your CU, something maybe you've heard um, from us if you've, been, if you've experienced anything from CUI before. And part of what this means about being a mission team on campus is taking the good news of the gospel um, somewhere that only you guys, if you're students, can actually go. Uh, universities, colleges, campuses are places that the churches can't go. It's places that even I, um, or people who are involved in CUI and other par- parachurch organizations, we can't go. That's, where you, that's why it needs to be the CU, that's why it needs to be you guys as the students understanding what it means to take the gospel um, into those places. But having worked now for CUI for a wee while, I've encountered some problems. I've encountered some situations where that doesn't really work for people. Um, and nearly just over a year ago, just over a year ago, I was chatting to a fella um, in a mission week. Just put a wee hand up for me if you know what a mission week is. Okay, about half of you. Um, a mission week is basically something that universities tend to do to put on an evangelistic series of evangelistic events throughout a week that people can invite their friends to, can invite people from their class to come along and to hear the gospel and maybe hear something challenged, maybe apologetically. I was chatting to a guy, and this was the Thursday of the week, and he was quite disappointed. He said, Johnny, look, I've invited my friend, and I've invited him repeatedly, and he hasn't actually come. And he was really quite disappointed, and I sort of quite empathetically wanted to say to him well look let's let's pray about it what's this guy's name and he paused and then went i can't remember and i was like oh right okay so you've you're telling me this is your friend who you're inviting but yet you can't remember his name and i was thinking this doesn't quite seem to to fit for me and then sometime the start of this academic year just passed, we were doing a training event about reading the Bible one-to-one with your friend. And I was sitting with a girl who'd come to this training event to learn about how to read the Bible one-to-one. And one of the questions that we were entering into and asking was, well, who are the people who you might want to do this with? And she didn't have a name. She didn't have anybody who she thought she had a good enough relationship with that she could ask to read the Bible to. But she was yet she was coming along to this training event because that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to read the Bible with somebody. But we were training on how to open the Bible. We weren't doing the training on how to make friends. Um, and that's the sort of the bit of the, the, the gap that we've got. Even myself, I work full-time now in, in ministry. And I've had the opportunity of meeting other people who work in full-time ministry. And shockingly, when chatting to them, they're struggling to name a few people, three people, who they would call their non-Christian friends. See, that's a bit of a, a problem, and I wonder whether or not you see the common thread in just those few stories. We are lacking uh, as people, we're lacking sometimes even as students and but beyond, enough relationship or relational capital with people to actually have conversations about the Bible, have conversations about our faith, have conversations about why we hold a biblical worldview. That's the reason that we're doing this seminar. That's the reason that we call it sort of bursting the bubble. 
And our hope this morning, the goal, so <laughs> a little bit dangerous me telling you what the goal is this morning because you'll be able at the very end to tell me, well, do you know what, Johnny, it didn't work. I don't feel encouraged and I don't feel equipped. But that's what we're going to try and do. We're going to try and encourage each other to uh, and equip each other for strategic and intentional evangelism. Not just evangelism, but strategic and intentional evangelism. Now, evangelism is, is a very broad concept and a very big idea. And what we're going to focus into is it's just something or a part of what those stories at the start are actually telling us, that we don't have this relational capital with the people around us. And part of the reason for that, in, in, in our opinion, is that we're not engaged in the culture around us. We're not going to sort of dive into a really lofty idea of what actually culture is. Uh, according to the dictionary, the, the culture is the ideas, customs, and social behavior of a particular people or society. So we're not going to explore exactly what that means. But what I want you guys to do, because we're going to do a little bit of work this morning and people who are around you, and hopefully we're going to share the experience and share what we know and learn from each other, is to actually discuss um, the different cultures that you have seen or that you have experienced. So if I was to look at, uh, look at my life, I'm not going to give you all of mine because I don't want that to limit your imagination. But in my life, one of the significant things is a rugby culture because I do that three times a week. And that influences the culture that I am a part of in Northern Ireland. So I want you to think quite broadly, what are the different cultures that are at play in your life? What are the different cultures that you experience? What are the different cultures that you see? It doesn't have to be all the ones that you're involved in, but it can be other ones that you see as well. Does that make sense? Okay, so that means you have to find a friend. So turn around, say hello to somebody, find out their name first, and then see if you can discuss what some of the cultures are. Okay, uh, I'm going to cut you off there because we're going to come back to this in a, in a wee second. But what are some of those cultures that you have, that you see that you are either a part of or that are around you or surrounding you? If you shout them out, I'll repeat them so that we can all hear them. So, or some of the cultures that you're involved in. Sorry? A work culture? Yeah. Is that the only culture that we experience? Just work? class okay so there's a university class culture as well that probably actually is different depending on what you actually study as well um so james what do you study business management so i would imagine that your culture in a business management class is very different from the culture that would have been in my architecture class whenever i was at university so what what, what else we've got some class we've got work what other culture are we involved in or we see shout it for me john Sport, yeah, the sport culture, okay, I mentioned rugby, but actually there's some very different sports cultures, but actually there is often a commonality um, for people who enjoy and play sport. There is a sporting culture. Anything else? Yep. Okay, so the sport teams go out together. Could I describe that as a going out culture? Okay, thank you. Does that ex only exist for sports teams? No, I'm getting some, some fairly substantial shakes of the heads, okay? There definitely is a going out culture, certainly among uh, Northern Irish sort of young adult student age and beyond, okay? Anything else uh, that's part of our culture? Maybe not even some of the things that we enjoy might be part of the culture that we don't really like, but it's still part of our culture. Does anybody know what was happening the whole of last week? Belfast? LBG LGBT pride culture? Okay. Abby, are you going to say something? Social media culture, huge part 
of what makes up our culture and starts to define the way that we behave and interact with each other. Anybody want to give me one more? Church culture. Okay, thank you very much. So all of those things, they, they work together and they play a part in what is our culture. Some might be more significant for you. Some might be less significant. Some might be things that you have never encountered, never been involved in, and don't actually, you don't even recognize it as part of your culture. Culture, if it's the fabric of life, then the threads of that, path, of, of that fabric are the pathways of communication, of understanding, of interaction and connection. All of those cultures that you've mentioned, and there are loads more if we were able to spend more time unpacking it, are the way in which we do life. It's the way in which we communicate with each other. It's the way in which we understand one another. It's the way in which we establish interactions and connections. But if we're not engaged on those levels, if we're not engaged in those cultures, then we don't have that communication, we don't have that understanding, we don't have that connection or that interaction. That's part of what we're trying to be getting towards this morning. There's a very significant culture change that's almost constantly happening, um, but most people think it's accelerating at the moment. It's quite a, quite a quick cultural, uh, cultural climate change almost. I think one of the uh, rabbis in England has quoted it as a cultural climate change. But the question then comes for us is how we're going to respond to that climate change. Uh, Peter Linus um, at the weekend put up these four words, four S as to how we can respond uh, to cultural climate change. Either we can respond in fight, we can respond in flight, we can respond by folding, or we can respond by flourishing in spite of it. Four very different responses to, to cultural change. Do we fight that cultural change? Do we not want it to happen? Do we resist it by not allowing it to enter into our lives to affect us in all of those spheres? Do we fly from it? Do we say, do you know what? If that's what's going to happen, if that's the change that's going to exist, I'm away. I'm no longer going to be part of this culture. Do we fold and say, well, do you know what? Even if it's against my worldview, even if it's against my biblical standpoint, I'm just going to give up. I'm just going to fold like you fold in, in card game. I'm just going to fold. I'm going to give up and I'm going to allow it to wash over me and to happen. And then I'm going to be part of it. Or do we flourish? Do we say, even though there is a cultural change that's happening, we're going to make sure that we continue to grow in Christ. We continue to make his name known. We continue to flourish in spite of that. So the second piece of work that I want you to do is through some of those cultural groups and cultural situations that you've talked about and that we've mentioned together, I want you to have a look at these four words. I want you to have a think. Are there instances that you have seen either in yourself or in others, or maybe you've even seen it in society at large where there have been instances where people are fighting this cultural change? Where there are instances that we just want to fly and get rid of it, we want to get away. Where there are instances that you've just sort of said, well, do you know what? That's okay. I'll just accept it. I'm going to forget about what I, what I believe and what I want, and I'm going to accept it in. Or are there periods whenever actually somebody has chosen that they want to flourish? Okay? That makes sense? Okay. Brilliant. Thanks. Have we chat? Those guys at the back, you might want to find some friends and have we chat with people about this. Okay. Okay, if you haven't moved your way down the list, try and get down to fold and flourish there, and I'll give you about another minute. Okay. 
Okay, let's pull it back together and let's get uh, some of those ideas uh, just shared with all of us. Uh, and then we'll move on to another way of thinking about this. So, in terms of responding to culture, where have we seen like a fight in that sense? Somebody or a night or a group? It's like having a, a musical backdrop here. Um, somebody fight this cultural change. You're really going to have to shout for me this time, though. Sorry? The Asher's case. Okay, yeah, so we've, we've got a, a culture um, which whenever something... Something happened, pretty sure we all know uh, about the cake that was refused uh, to be baked because of what was put on the top of it. And there was a big fight against against them for holding that that opinion, that worldview, uh, and trying to live and live and run their business in that way. And there was a big fight, a very political uh, and very public fight about that. Yeah. What about uh, what about flight? Can somebody give us an example whenever there's a cultural change and there's just a, a flight away from it? Could be personal. It could be a group of people. Any thoughts? That's okay. Maybe we'll come back to that one. Okay. What about fold? What about whenever we just give up, just give in, and allow the cultural change to happen? Can somebody give us an example of that? Okay. So your friend, whenever she was underage, gave in to this going out culture, uh, and just has continued to fold on what she would have said she believed in the past. Okay, thank you very much. Very personal example, okay? Um, let's leave flourish just for the moment, okay? Those are four ways in which we could respond uh, to culture, but yet, in many ways, apart from to flourish, whenever we explore them, those can be quite negative in how we've actually done it because you're responding. But I want to suggest to you that actually there's a way that you can actually engage with culture in sometimes the same ways, but maybe in a slightly more positive way. So instead of the four Fs, I've given you four Rs. Four Rs. Whenever you look at the culture around us, you don't have to treat each culture as an entity in itself. But actually, if you engage with it, if you look into it, if you explore it, if you even consider whether or not you can be involved in it, are there parts of that culture that you have to reject? You just have to say no to because they're against what you believe, against your biblical worldview, against your faith. Are there parts of that culture that actually, that could be redeemed. That could be taken and actually being, could be used for God's kingdom purposes. Are there parts of that culture that actually already you can receive? There's goodness there. There's goodness that you can be involved in. There's goodness that you can celebrate. There's actually already kingdom values in that culture, but maybe they don't know that they are kingdom values, that they are God's values for his people. And are there things that we can just reap, that we can celebrate, that actually already are being, um, already are being seen and being known for being kingdom values, for being the ways that God wants us in his culture to behave? So very quickly, I want you to turn back into those same groups and to think, are there maybe things that I've said or I've thought I need to fly from or that I need to fight uh, or I need to fold on that actually maybe if I didn't just respond, but I engaged, I could engage slightly differently. I can reject parts, receive others, try and redeem something and maybe receive it. So for this, what you might need to do is you need to pick one particular culture that maybe you and the person beside you or around you that you can share some information on it and then see other ways that parts of it need rejected, parts need redeemed, parts can be received.
Okay, I'm saying quite a few nods. I mean, everybody okay what we're doing so far? Okay, I know I'm making you do a fair bit of the work, but sure, that's good for me. So keep going. Okay, apologies to cut that off, but feel free to, to keep talking about that, or maybe you finished already and you went on to talk about something else. Um, so our four R's, to reject, to redeem, to receive, and to reap, okay? If we're thinking about engaging with culture, and maybe you want to tell us the culture that you were thinking about as well, but what are some of the things that you've said, oh, actually, do you know what, that still needs rejected. Even if I'm going to engage with this culture, I still need to reject that part of it. Can somebody give us an example of what you were talking about in your group? Go on, be brave. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll go for both of you, okay? Abby, go first. Going out, okay, so what about, what about that are you going to reject? Okay, so for what Abby said there, she's going to reject the part where you actually go out, but we're still going to try and redeem the friendship with the person who wants you to go out. Okay, it's a really good example because we don't just write somebody off because they've decided that going out is going to be part of their life and part of their culture. We don't just fight them and we don't just fly from that relationship. We figure out is there a way that we can redeem that friendship. Brilliant, thanks very much, Abby. James? Okay, rugby club initiations. Okay, for those of us who don't know what that is, uh, give us a PC version. Is there a PC version? Okay, so for those of you who don't know, in some rugby clubs, in some sporting traditions, especially whenever you get to university, there are initiations. Think American teen movie and you're not far off some of the things that people are asked to do, either with their bodies or with alcohol, okay? So, but initiations often are, are a rite of passage, that if you want to play for this team, if you want to be involved in this club, that you need to go through this. So, James, what are you, what are you then saying about that? Are you, are you not going to play rugby? Okay, so making a stand, this is who I am, and this is what I am about, and I'm not going to compromise on that. Yeah, so the hope that they'll adapt to you, and then they respect you, and in your experience, they have respected you and made the adjustments. And I, I can affirm that too uh, in my rugby experience that things that are outside of, of my biblical worldview that I have objected to, that I, I've received respect for actually putting my hand up and saying, look, I want to play for this team, I want to be involved here, but I'm not doing that. And you can either take me or leave me on the basis of that. And what you'll actually find is sometimes we think less of the people around us. Sometimes we think that they're going to give up on us. Sometimes we think that they're going to want nothing to do with us. But more often than not, in my experience, people still want you about. I'm going to respect you. Okay, so thanks very much for that, you too. Um, what about redeeming? Can somebody give us an example of something that they've seen or experienced or they've had an opportunity to redeem in a culture maybe around you? Yes? Memes, okay. David, what do you mean by memes? Okay, they're popular on the internet. Okay, so there's satire, there's irony in these memes, but you can actually use it to teach the gospel. Okay, um, and I, I've seen that. Some of you may have seen that around on Facebook as things go whenever people are taking these ideas and using it to actually communicate biblical truth. Um, but the other side of it, as you say, David, is some of things can be very inappropriate and very offensive and outside of maybe what we would want to entertain and to promote. Great example. Has anybody seen anything that you can just receive? You can just say, yeah, that's good. Let's just take that on board. It may be part of, of, of something bigger, which I don't like, but I, but I want to be part of that. 
it's maybe a slightly diff- difficult one, especially if you've come to this cold and I'm asking you to think on your feet this morning. Any thoughts? Maybe a slightly controversial one, but if we take, it was mentioned earlier on, the LGBTQ, the pride culture. But actually, there's there's something in that definitely that we as Christians probably want to say we reject. There's things that we want to say, especially for the people, that we want to redeem. Um, but what about the pursuit of equality? Are we going to say that equality is something that we as Christians are not invested in? Now, that's not what this seminar is about, so I'm not going to explore that. But biblically, we should be pursuing equality. So what does that mean in terms of an LGBT agenda? Because they don't seem to, at the moment, mix. But we want to say that there's some things that we can receive, but we still need to reject parts and we still need to redeem parts. So are there other parts of culture that we can actually receive and then figure out, well, if we're receiving that, what does that actually look like for you and me in conversation? Um, we'll move on from reap. Um, in the different ways that we can respond and the different ways that we can engage with culture, those four R's, those four F's, depending on how we do that, if all we do is fight, if all we do is to fly, flight, if all we do is reject, or even one of the hours that wasn't there, to retreat, what we end up doing is we end up being uninvolved in the world around us, uninvolved in culture, disengaged from people, disengaged from what they believe, who they are, and how they are actually doing life. But then we're still a body of people. We're still a body of people called Christians who believe in the God of the Bible and believe in a biblical worldview that we want to follow. So you end up with this Christian subculture. A subculture is a cultural group with a, um, within a larger culture, often having beliefs or interests at variance with those of a larger culture. We call that, in, in our context, this Christian bubble that you end up, everything that you do, everything that you're involved in is connected with the Christian bubble because we're worried or we're afraid or we've completely rejected everything which is not connected with a Christian worldview. But if you're part of a Christian bubble, if you're part of this Christian subculture, then you've lost the opportunity to engage in this fabric of life, this way of communicating, of understanding, of connecting with people who are different from you. And if you're invested, if you're committed to evangelism, if you're committed for other, to other people to know who Jesus is, you need to have ways of connecting with them. You need to have ways that they can understand you. You need to have ways to communicate. So we need to find a way that our Christian subculture, a lot of things which are really brilliant, which are really good for us, um, being part of churches, being part of youth groups, being part of CUs, being part of small groups, being part of parachurch organizations, Christians in sport, CUI, whatever. How can those good things still be good for us without it becoming everything and the only thing that we're actually about? Does that make sense? I wonder whether or not you think you're in this 
Christian subculture because if you're here, you're definitely involved in some way. But actually, you might already be sitting here and saying, well, do you know what? I'm, I'm coming to New Horizon, but actually I'm meeting up with my non-Christian mates uh, this afternoon and we're going for a round of golf. Or I'm meeting up with somebody and, and we're going for coffee. And you may be already very invested in the lives of non-Christians and communicating who you are and communicating the relationship you have with God. But maybe you're not. Maybe you are like some of those stories at the start, because I know that I've been like those stories at the start. I remember the first time that I sat in a, in a Christians in Sport meeting, and I was given a piece of paper and asked to write down three teammates um, that, I had, that I had spoken to about my faith. And I struggled. They knew I was a Christian, but I couldn't write three people down who I knew I had spoken to about it. Maybe you are too. Here's potentially some of the questions that we can ask ourselves to see whether or not we're exhibiting some of the symptoms of being part of this Christian bubble. Do you actually find it difficult to communicate with unbelievers, to hold a conversation? Do you use language like Christianese sort of language that only church and believing people understand? If somebody asked you what you believe, would you be using words like salvation, like sin, like heaven and hell, that maybe some people don't really understand what you mean by them, what you understand by them? Do you find spending time with other, with other non-Christians difficult? Do you want to spend time with Christians, with people like you? Or even asking yourself, when do I actually spend time with non-Christians? It's very easy to become part of this bubble that all the things that are really good for us, that encourage us in our faith, that allow us to be discipled, to grow, to almost be more equipped for evangelism, then become the only things that we do. And you become like that girl who's going to, to figure out how to read the Bible one-to-one -one with her friends, but actually she walks away not even knowing the person who she wants to even do that with. Because I don't want that for me, and I certainly don't want it for you guys and your CUs and your universities. Now, if you looked up Christian subculture, if you looked up the Christian bubble in a concordance and like a Bible dictionary, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find it, but one character who I would suggest to you, if there was such a thing, was potentially involved, is this guy Jonah. Stick your hand up for me if you know the story of Jonah. Brilliant. Perfect. Okay, so we all know the story of Jonah. We know that Jonah was a man who was a prophet. Actually, we're introduced to Jonah, first of all, in Second Kings as a successful prophet, somebody who God had used to communicate his truth um, to kings at that time, and they had responded appropriately. But yet, whenever we meet him in the book of Jonah, we get a very different impression of him. We get a very different understanding of who he is. God has to come to him and tell Jonah, get up, I've got, I've got a job for you to do. I need you to go to Nineveh. He refuses. He actually gets up and goes the other way in complete defiance. He goes to Tarshish. He tries to run away from the Lord, and yet the Lord sends a, a storm to cause to catch that boat where it is and to, brought, to bring to attention that there's something wrong, there's something that shouldn't be happening because that boat is going in the direction of Tarshish. He then uses the lots to identify Jonah as his man. He then uses a fish to catch him, to stop him hurling, him, hurling himself, basically, to his own death. All for the purposes that God wanted Jonah to take his message to the people of Nineveh. 
Jonah really didn't want to go. And if we read the whole book of Jonah, it's not actually true if we think the only reason that Jonah didn't go was he was afraid. Because actually Jonah himself tells us through the whole book and into chapter 4 that he was prideful, that he knew exactly who God was and what God was going to do. And he didn't want God to do He didn't want God to save the Ninevites. That's the reason he didn't want to go. Jonah himself had found himself completely in sort of trenched, really, in being part of God's people. And yet his job was to be God's spokepiece. And he didn't want to go. He didn't want to do his job. He didn't want to speak for God where God wanted him to speak. He didn't want to take the gospel to those people who were outside of his tradition, outside of his people. But maybe, maybe we're not like Jonah. Maybe we're not unmotivated and need to be told to get up. Maybe we're not disobedient and going the other way. Maybe God isn't actually pursuing us to do his work. Or is he? I believe that he is. And actually, whenever I read Jonah, the more I read Jonah, the more I see myself in Jonah's behavior towards people who are outside of God's plan, who are outside of our current sort of faith, people who we would call non-Christians, non-believers. You see, God's maybe not calling you to Nineveh, but he is calling you. In Matthew uh, Matthew 28, the, the very famous Great Commission, Jesus says to the disciples, an extension to us, that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. Therefore, he tells them to go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. That was Jesus' command to his disciples, to go and make disciples. That's to them and that's to us. We are to go. Go and make disciples of all nations. In Matthew chapter 9, the passage about the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Excuse me, I'm just going to grab my Bible. Jesus is speaking again and explaining to the disciples what's going on because he sees a bunch of people. He's walking through the crowds and he sees them and he has compassion on them. He has compassion on them because they're lost. Because they're lost and they're in need of a shepherd. Because they're helpless and because they're harassed. And what he actually says is the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The people who are prepared to do this work are few in number. Then interestingly, at the end, he doesn't then just say, well, just go. He actually tells them to pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. Then Matthew 28 comes and he says, go. We've got two things. We've got to pray for the Lord to send people out into his harvest. And we've got to go. 
Hopefully, that encourages you. There's a fair bit of stuff there that we've probably had to look in and say, well, that's not good. and Maybe it wasn't all positive, but hopefully that encourages you that there's a world out there, that there's a culture out there that you need to be involved in, that you need to be engaged with if you want to be able to communicate, if you want to be able to relate with people. Second part then says to equip for strategic and intentional evangelism. So... What I want to share with you this morning is a bit of a model that might work for you or it might not, okay? Not going to give you all the tools of of evangelism or all the things that you can do, but here's one model, okay? Uh, It's called, um, well, I can't actually remember the name. I've been calling it different things every time I mention it, but essentially four tables of evangelism or a relational evangelistic journey. And the journey that I'm going to suggest that you need to take people on, especially if you're a student here, is from your lecture bench or your studio table or your office table, you've got to then take them from there to a coffee table or a bar table, then to the dinner table, and the last part of their journey is to the Lord's table. Now, what I mean by that is that, actually, if you imagine that first guy that I told you the story of, the one who said, Johnny, look, my, my friend didn't come, and then I, and then I said, what's his, what's his name? And he's struggling to remember. Is he really his friend? Has he really engaged relationally with him? Because if, if all we're doing is like almost like cold calling somebody, just picking up a phone or just walking around and picking out random people that we've decided, I want you to be a Christian today and you're going to come with me to this talk. That's probably not going to work. It might because God's an amazing God and sometimes he does that. But statistically, that's usually not how it's happening. We need to be able to take people through these journeys from the place that we meet them and interact with them all the way until God calls them into a living relationship with him. We've got about 15 minutes, just shy of 15 minutes left. So I want us to walk through these tables together and actually start to think, are there people who are at this point in the journey relationally with me who I can start to think about how I'm going to engage them, engage them with the gospel. How I'm going to take them to a place where they're more likely to be listening to what God is saying, more likely to be listening whenever he's calling them in their relationship with him. So the first place is your lecture bench, your studio table. If you're working, maybe it's your office desk. Wherever you are, the people that you're encountering on a day-to-day basis, they are this table. They are stage one. They're your colleagues, your classmates, your teammates, even acquaintances. And how can you begin engaging with those people? Very quickly, I want you to pick one of those verses at the bottom there. John chapter 17, verse 15 to 18. Romans 12, that should say 1 to 2, not to 32. Sorry, don't be reading the whole passage there. I don't even think there's 32 verses there, but anyway. Or John chapter 13, 34 to 35. So just pick one of them, wherever you are, and have a flick to it and see what it says. Okay, so what have we found? John 17, what does it tell us? Somebody find what the important part of that verse is for us? I'll read it for us. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the word, so I have sent them into the world. 
Jesus is saying that we are sent into this world to be a part of it, but yet in Romans it tells us that we're to no longer conform to the patterns of this world, that we are to be set apart, that we're to be marked as being different. In this first place of interaction where you are automatically likely to meet non-Christians, unless you're like me and you're in full-time ministry, the likelihood is that wherever you are working, wherever you are studying, that you are sharing that space with a non-Christian. You've got to begin in this common place of interaction. Can you demonstrate integrity? Can you show what it means to be set apart, to be distinctive? When it says attractive there, I don't mean physically attractive. Can you be attractive? Somebody that somebody wants to spend time with to get to know because of your personality, whether it be because you're humorous or loyal or anything else, but be marked as being distinctive and somebody that somebody would be prepared to get to know. The reason for that is because the next place that you want to take them to is a sort of a coffee table or a bar room relationship where you're, you're sort of in that let's grab a coffee stage of life, that you're comfortable in that sort of environment. It could be, if you think about the sort of people that maybe fit into that, they're maybe your Facebook friends, although sometimes our Facebook friends become people who we haven't seen or we actually met once or maybe we saw across the room. But sometimes Facebook friends are these people who we can grab a coffee with. If you're struggling to think again, it's maybe people who you would invite to your evening wedding reception or you've been invited to your evening wedding reception. Those sort of people that you have that sort of relationship with. The coffee table or the bar, the bar room table. In that sort of environment, once you've taken them beyond table one, this is the point where you've got to start communicating life to them. That they've got to see that you're worth getting to know because of more than just your faith relationship with God. You're all fearfully and wonderfully made. But actually everybody in this room is different. You all like different things. You all enjoy different things. And God has made you that way. To Whether it be you enjoy sport, you enjoy music, whether you actually have a stamp collection... I don't know, but that's the way that you've been made and those are the sort of things that you can actually share with people and you can build relationship on. If you're studying the same course, maybe you're interested in the same career path. Maybe you've got similar tastes in music, similar tastes in movies. But that's all about who you are. You're not just your faith. You're more than that. And that's something that you can share um, with somebody else. On average, it takes three years. Statistically, uh, Christianity Explored, Life Explored movement, in their research have found that it takes three, three years um, for somebody, once they have heard the gospel, on average, to respond to that in a faith-committing relationship. This is not going to happen instantly. It needs to be something that you guys are invested in, that you're prepared to get involved in. It might cost you 20-odd coffees before they start buying one back. It might cost you your time. It might cost you a lot of things. But are you invested in getting to know this person? Can you explain what makes you makes you, you and makes you tick? Where you want to take somebody to after that is you want to take them to the dinner table. Maybe this, hopefully this analogy is working for you and you understand where I'm coming from in saying that you're, the people who you meet in that lecture hall studio 
there may be people who you wouldn't invite immediately around for dinner. That has to become a bit of a journey in terms of getting to know people. Sometimes that involves coffee shops. Sometimes then it can hopefully go on to sharing a meal with somebody. And once you're sharing meals with somebody, it implies that there is a deeper relationship and a deeper bond between you. Could be the full day wedding guest, people who you have in WhatsApp group friend chats. Those are the sort of people that maybe are in that ballpark for you. At the dinner table, you really got to start to ask yourself the question, are you in this for the long haul? Are you ready to do life together with somebody who might take years? And maybe even they might never respond to God. Are you prepared to do life with them, to do relationship with them? In Galatians 4, Paul talks about whenever his feelings for the Galatians and talks about almost carrying them like a mother would carry a baby, that that's how, how deeply he cares for them and how deeply he's invested in them. Are you going to be burdened in prayer for these people for sometimes a lifetime? I have two people who are in the dinner table category for me. One is one of my best mates and one is a family member, both of whom have for a long time said that they want nothing to do with God, they want nothing to do with faith, and they want nothing to do with the biblical worldview. But yet they're at the dinner table. They're not going to leave it. I'm not going to want them to leave, and I'm not going to run away from it. But I have to be invested in the long haul. I have to be prayerfully carrying them for as long as it takes, for as long as God gives me this burden to carry in the hope that they will respond to the gospel and the hope that God would use me, be one of the laborers that he sends into the harvest to actually call them to respond to his good news. The last table is the Lord's table. It's intentionally the Lord's table because we see that this journey isn't really actually about us. God calls people into a relationship with him. We have no claim, we have no right over an ownership as to why somebody has come into a relationship with God. God calls people to his table and we read in Matthew 9 that that's why we pray. We pray because we want God to send people into the harvest. It's his harvest, it's, it's his crops. He's the one who's planted them, he's the one who's going to reap them. And by some strange understanding, he's decided that he wants to use you and me in order to do that. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Let's just look at Jesus' example. He went through the cities and village villages. He was there. He wasn't disengaged. He was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He was healing every disease and every affliction. He was meeting the needs as he could. Maybe we can't go and heal everybody, but we can meet needs of people. We can be servant-hearted to those we see around us. It's one of the ways that is brilliant at marking us as being different in how we serve because of who we love and who we worship. He saw the crowds, he saw the people, and he had compassion for them. Do we actually have compassion for those who are helpless, who are harassed, who are sheep without a shepherd? Do we have feelings towards them that we want them to know the gospel, that we want them to come into a saving faith relationship with Jesus? 
And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers or the workers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Hopefully, like me, you maybe agree, you come to an understanding, or maybe you say, oh, it's okay, fair enough, I'll take what you've said, Johnny, and say that God is both sending you into that harvest, and he's also asking you to pray that he would send more people into it. For you guys, if you're university students, for you guys, if you're still at school, whether you're at work, there is a harvest field for you. There's somewhere that God is calling you to. If you're in university, that's by his sovereign will that you're there. That UCAS letter that you got, he has put you there and he has called you to that place. And if you know him, you've got a job to do. You've got a ministry there of people who need to know the gospel. And it's our hope and prayer as CUI and as many others that you don't become trapped in a Christian bubble where, like Jonah, you want nothing else than to be involved with these people who don't know God and don't know faith. But you need to burst that bubble. You need to be involved in that culture. You need to, as, a, as an adult, figure out how you can enter into a culture and say, there's things here I need to reject. There's things here that I can redeem and there's things here that I can receive and there's people here who God wants to reap for his kingdom. Guys, if you've got any more questions about that, please come and ask me. I hope that you feel encouraged to engage with your culture and to engage with your campus and your college mates and people who don't know Jesus and I hope that you feel some way equipped with that four-table analogy. I really would encourage you to think who are the people who are at those stages for me. If we'd had more time today, that's what I would have asked you to do is talk to the person beside you. Who's at that lecture hall? Who's at the coffee table? Who's at the dinner table? And what is God asking me to do in that space? Okay. Can I, I know it's quarter two, but can I pray for us? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for everybody here this morning. I want to thank you, uh, Father, if they know you, that you have called them into that relationship with you. I want to thank you, Father, that in some way you've encouraged them to be here this morning. Father, you want us to be involved and part of the culture around us. You want us to be redeeming it, to make it a culture that is full of kingdom values. And I just pray, Father, that you would use these people here gathered today to do that in their universities, in their campuses, wherever you have them, in their jobs. In Jesus' name, amen.